Good morning. Thank you. Let's open up our Bibles to the book of Romans. If you're new with us and uh, unfamiliar where the book of Romans is, it's in the book of, it's in the New Testament. <clears throat> so after you go past Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you'll keep going to the right through the book of Acts and the book of Romans. While our text is going to be focused this morning on verses 24 through 32, I think it'll be helpful for us to read starting in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. So Romans chapter 1, if you would take your copy of God's Word or look up on the screen, follow along with me as I begin reading in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. May God bless the reading of his word. After I graduated seminary uh, in 2008, my wife and I were traveling from Los Angeles with then Grace, who was um, 18 months old, I think, and Hannah was four weeks old. I don't think you guys remember that trip. But since it was December, we decided it'd be best to take the southern route back over this direction. And so we traveled through Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas. And for most of our travels, uh, we were traveling through desert. It was uh, high temperatures, hot. 
And so we, 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 we weren't expecting any sort of inclement weather on our way. And so we're, we're driving through the middle of the night. And that's a, another story that I could share at another time. But at this point, I was driving through the night. Uh, we are, we're coming through North Texas. We're, we're in Dallas. And to our knowledge, the, the temperatures were still as warm as they were when we first entered Texas. And, uh, and, and we weren't expecting anything uh, like we came across. As I was driving, I began to notice cars with flashing lights in the, in the median with ditches or in the ditch. Uh, I came upon a, an ambulance with their lights on and, and another car on another side. And I'm like, goodness, what is wrong with these people? Why can't they drive and stay on the, on the road? Um, but then I began to see the car next to me start tail spinning and, and spin out and go. And I realized, oh no, I look at the thermometer, we're in freezing temperatures, and we're driving at 70 miles per hour on a sheet of ice. I begin to pump my brakes, and we're skidding as well, but by God's grace, uh, we were able to uh, get off on that exit. Uh, it was also appropriate, so I could take a nap and hand over the wheel to Sarah so we could make it even further. Um, but as I reflect on that time, Unknowingly, I had led my family down a path of great peril. And God only knows how long it was that we were just cruising right along at 70 to 75 miles per hour on a sheet of ice. It wasn't until I saw the wreckage that I realized the danger we were in. Well, this morning, as we look at Romans chapter 1, Paul describes for us the great peril which humanity is in, whereby men and women are skating on thin ice under the judgment of God. And for us this morning, where I want us to reflect is, is reflect on our prior lives to Christ, because this text reveals the peril that we once were in. For we were awakened to see the danger that awaited us. So beginning here in verse 18, where we were a couple of weeks ago, Paul declares that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as we examine this passage all the way through verse 23, we saw that God's judgment upon the world First, uh, was coming because of the sin of idolatry. And idolatry is the refusal of humanity to worship God as he has been revealed and as our creator. And so this injustice, as you may say, uh, uh, this injustice of idolatry is grounds for God's just judgment of the world. However, as we left these verses, we, we left with a question unanswered. Yes, God is just to judge all of humanity because we are all among those who are ungodly and unrighteous, who have suppressed the truth in our, our unrighteousness and chosen to, to serve other things rather than the God who created us. But we're left with this question, well, what is the wrath of God that verse 18 says, is presently revealed from heaven. What is that? Oftentimes when we think of God's wrath, 
uh, I, I think of uh, maybe the ten plagues in Egypt, uh, where you've got hail and fire and brimstone, you've got the river turned to blood, you've got darkness over the land. We also think of uh, Christ's return, right? The coming day of the Lord, whereby the earth is said to be consumed with a, with a fire. We even sang a song that spoke of that coming day. Think of how uh, 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 of the coming day of judgment that is spoken of in the book of Revelation where, where uh, the whole earth is turned upside down and the whole world stands before God as he opens up the books and judges humanity for their evil deeds. In other words, often I think when we think of God's wrath, we're thinking of the future wrath to come, the, the future day of the Lord, the, the day of judgment. However, the scripture, as we're going to see here, also speaks of a present reality of this wrath. A present judgment that has come upon humanity. Jesus himself even speaks of it in John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. And he says this, but the wrath of God remains on him. So there is a a real sense in which those who do not know Christ, those who do not believe the gospel, that they are in a state of being under the judgment of God. The Apostle Peter says something very similar in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. He says, the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials. That's comforting, right? He knows how to rescue his people. But he also, Peter says, is able to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And so what we see is that there is a present reality, at least at some level, whether we understand it or not, by which the unbelieving world is under the hand of God's judgment. And what we see this morning is that it anticipates the future day of wrath. It's also important for us to understand that when we speak of God's wrath, I know that's like a real popular thing to think of and, and real encouraging. You're like, man, this is my first Sunday. What, you know, I don't, this must be a really gloomy group of people. But when we think of God's wrath, it's important that we don't think of it like we think of our own wrath, which is flippant. We easily go off the rails. We'll, we'll easily fly off the handle, right? Especially if we don't have sleep, or we're grumpy, uh, or we're hungry. You know, we need to get Snickers before to calm us down, right? Well, God's anger is not irrational. It's not some blind rage as if he's just up there, just grumpy as all get out. And if we do something wrong and whoosh, he strikes down some lightning upon us that that's not the picture that we see here rather if you want to think about God's wrath biblically God's wrath is his holy response to evil it's God's holy meaning his his righteous his pure response to what is evil and although we are not holy and righteous like God is we understand that we have responses that are uh, righteous anger towards what is evil. We experience rage toward evil when we, we watch the news, don't we? 
where we see injustice occur or, or we hear of another uh, terror attack, and we see people running for their lives. I think back um, this past year or over the last two years where undercover videos came out about Planned Parenthood and you began to see the true evil uh, which were murdering children and selling their body parts for a profit. And there's a, a rage that builds up in us. It says justice should be served. Well, that's a glimpse of the rage and the wrath of God. And where I want to uh, help us see is that God's wrath is actually good news. You might say, well, how, how's that? It's good news because it tells us that God stands against what is evil. And he will not let it prevail. That's good news. We, we need someone who can execute justice upon the wicked. The problem is for us, as we're going to see, is we're by default the wicked. That's the bad news. That's what we saw last week in, in verses 18 through 23. And our wickedness, our evil, if you want to put it that way, takes root in the sin of idolatry, a refusal to worship God. And so as we now come to verses 24 through 32, Paul explains to us how it is that God is presently judging humanity. How, how is he doing that? He says here, that humanity's refusal to worship God as creator results in the great peril of being handed over to our sinful desires. Here's what the judgment is currently being poured out upon humanity. You don't worship God as I have, as he has revealed himself. He gives you to your desires. Three times in this text. You can see it in verse 24, verse 26, and verse 28. Paul says, therefore, or for this reason, God gave them over. That's a scary phrase. That God gives you over. Maybe you've experienced that even as a parent. Maybe you've, you've had a, a rebellious child or and you have parented and you've ex extended much grace over, over the years, but it's come to the point that the only thing left is you're on your own. And the prayer is, is that through the destruction that you're about to bring upon yourself, you'll come to your senses. And you'll come back. Well, in a similar way, God has given sinful humanity up to their own sinful desires. And here in this text, Paul is going to describe two manifestations of God's wrath on humanity. So if you're taking notes, I only have two points this morning, but it'll be the same amount of time, okay? <clears throat> Number one, it's the handing over to our lustful hearts. God hands over humanity to their lustful hearts. And number two, the handing over to corrupt minds. We're going to spend more time on the first one than the second, but those are our two points this morning. But as we consider how it is that God's judgment is being poured out and handing sinners over, what we're going to see is our need for Christ to change our hearts and renew our minds, which is exactly what the gospel does. 
changes our hearts and renews our minds. So as we come here to our text beginning in verse 24, we see the first consequence for idolatry. And that consequence is the delivering up to our lustful hearts. This idea of of giving over speaks to God lifting his restraining hand upon humanity that prevents us from spiraling into the depths of our sin and perversion. So do you see this picture? The judgment of God is he withdraws his hand. You reject me, God says, as I have revealed myself as your creator and king and master, and you say, I don't want you, the judgment is, okay, I'll back away. He gives you over. He he gives you to your desires. He, He lifts his hand, which is a helpful reminder. This is not teaching that we're all as bad as we could be, right? By God's grace. We're not all to the nth degree of our depravity and sinfulness. Well, what is it that keeps humanity from being as bad as it could be? The restraining hand of God. And somehow, and and, and Paul doesn't unpack this fully here, but somehow in every individual life, God, this is happening generally across humanity, but it also happens individually. Which those who in the rebellion persist in, 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 Rebelling against God, he, he, he lifts his hand. We don't know how that works. We don't know when someone has, quote-unquote, reached the point of no return. But the scripture does speak of such incidences. But here the picture is humanity in general has been given over to the curse of sin. And when his hand is taken away, in a strange sense, we are free. We're just free to indulge in perverse desires. And so the picture that Paul is describing for us is a gradual corruption of humanity that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. All the way back after our first parents rebelled in the garden, forsook God's command not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that point on, God said, the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Humanity has been dying ever since. And this is the picture of what it looks like. The judgment is you're given over to your sin. You're given over to the power of sin. And so just like our first parents, we too bear rebellious hearts, right? We're all rebels. And the present judgment is upon humanity for that reason. But I want you to see here the the lust of our flesh that Paul talks about, the lust of our hearts to impurity. He's talking here specifically of sexual immorality. He's talking of sexual immorality in all its sorts. You may wonder, why is sexual immorality rampant throughout the world? Because God has handed over humanity. That's, That's the result. That's the reason that this has happened. God gives humanity over to their idolatry, which perverts our desires and leads to sexual sins of all sorts. All of it. Adultery, fornication, rape, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, pedophilia. All these things begin to run rampant when God 
lifts his restraining hand. In other words, when we see these things in the world, brothers and sisters, let me get real, very real with this. When we see these things in our own heart, they are not signs of our freedom and progress. They are signs of slavery to a curse. And for this reason, Paul depicts sexual immorality for what it really is. Notice he says, to impurity, verse 24, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Brothers and sisters, you and I and every person who's ever been born have been created for a purpose. We are created in the image of God to reflect his glory, his beauty, his splendor, to experience that joy forever and in fellowship with him. That's how we were designed to live and be. But when humanity is given over to their lust because of their sinful rebellion, we become like animals. We're dehumanized. In other words, we become, and we saw this a couple of weeks, we become what we worship. What do they worship in verse 23? Images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And it's interesting, that list kind of goes degradingly down. Man being the pinnacle of creation, you got birds in the air, you got four-footed creatures, and then you got a reptile, probably referencing the serpent who lays on his belly on the dust of the ground. And instead of worshiping the God of the heavens who created all things, the picture is that we're down there on the ground eating the dirt. There's an important connection that Paul makes here between idolatry and sexual immorality. Why is it that humanity is given to such sensuality? Verse 25, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And worshiped, the, worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. This is exactly what we saw as Pastor Mike read from Exodus chapter 32, isn't it? Israel's been redeemed out of Egypt. God's delivered them. Moses is going up to receive a word from the Lord. They get a little impatient. Where is he? Aaron, make for us an idol. They don't really say it that way. Make for us gods so that we may worship. And I want to read verse 6 and kind of pull this out a little bit more. Exodus chapter 32, verse 6. Just listen. And after they'd made the golden calf, Aaron had done that, they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. What's that? It's idolatry. It's worship, but false worship. They get up, they, they worship, and then Moses records, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now when we read this, them rising up to play was not to, to, to open up a deck of cards or to play freeze tag. Okay, That's not what happened. This is a euphemism for sexual morality. Paul makes that connection clearer when he exhorts the Corinthian church to flee idolatry. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, referencing the golden calf incident, he says these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. 
He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were. And then he quotes that same verse. The people sat down and, to eat and drink and rose up to play. And then Paul says, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 of them fell in a single day. There's this connection, the scripture says, of idolatry, which leads right into sexual immorality. So false worship and idolatry lead to the corruption of our bodies, which shows itself in impurity. It's the judgment of God upon humanity when this occurs. Come back to Romans if you haven't left. Verse 26, Paul says, for this reason. What reason? What reason? Idolatry. For this reason that we exchange the truth for a lie, he goes on, he says, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Here in these two verses, Paul highlights the sin of homosexuality in particular. While the scripture speaks of this sin elsewhere, this is probably the most explicit text in all of scripture. And homosexuality, like all other sexual sin, we're going to see is the judgment of God upon humanity. And you might be asking, why does he highlight this one? I mean, there's plenty of, of things to, to pull from. And I'm sure even now, as, as we even read this text, as I'm now approaching it, some of us are feeling a little squeamish. Oh, my word, we're really going here. But what I want you to see is that the reason Paul highlights this sin is not because in some way it's worse than others but rather because it most explicitly illustrates the reversal of God's design. It's a full-fledged illustration of the exchanging of the truth for a lie. That God has revealed himself to us as our creator, and he made us a particular way. And, and, and this sin takes that truth, suppresses it, and exchanges it, flips it on its head. It's a full-out rebellion against God's design. And brothers and sisters, we live in a culture that's demanding of us not only to accept this, but also to celebrate it as good and loving. And brothers and sisters, I know for some of you that this is very difficult the pressure that the culture is putting upon you, it's difficult. I know you have friends. It's even closer when it's family members or, or co-workers who would identify to be gay. And I've spoken with some of you. And I know the struggle and, and, and the wrangling over texts such as these. I know the pain of even how Christians have talked about these issues with flippancy as if somehow uh, they're not tainted by sin and the harm that has caused to others. And I know you look at these texts, you say, I, I wish these weren't here. I wish there was some way around it. But I know when you have a face and a name, 
and you start to see people as, they, as, as image bearers, made to reflect the glory of God, and you see them as someone to be loved and not just an issue to talk about, the truth of this passage can be very hard to swallow. So I want, I want you to know I empathize with you. I have to struggle with these things in, in my own life and other relationships that I have, the people I know. And as a result, many, even so-called Christians and, and Christian leaders, have, have gone to great lengths to explain these passages, this passage in particular, away. Trying to bring comfort, often. Trying to, to lessen the blow of the reality of this text. Trying to, to be loving. But it, great, it actually causes great harm and, and, and more damage. It suggests that this text is a, a genuine expression of the love which God is well pleased with. And it's not. I want you to notice what Paul says here in verse 26, how he describes homosexuality. It's dishonorable passions. It's dishonorable passions. Why, why are they dishonorable? Well, to start off, it's because it's in rebellion to God's design for men and women as he created them. Here in this passage, when he speaks of their women, and then in verse 28, and the men, uh, he uses a unique term for men and women here. It, it could woodenly be translated females and males. And the reason this is important to highlight is because it's the same word used in Genesis 1:27, where we read that God created mankind in his image. He created him male and female. So as we consider this text, and, and, and a lot of things that you may hear, blogs, Facebook posts, books, that are trying to undo what God's Word says about this particular sin, first of all, we need to keep in mind that Paul's rooting his argument in creation. And that's going to be important when I bring up one objection that comes later. Throughout this passage, as we've seen from verse 18 all the way to the end of verse 32, Paul has been emphasizing God is our heavenly creator. And as the creator, God has made the world as he sees fit. And it, ref it is to reflect his design and his good purposes. And that includes the fact that he made us male and female. And that's why he uses these terms. So this passage speaks very much into our current day where we're, we're thinking about issues that we call gender dysphoria, gender identity, transgenderism. These are, are, are sensitive issues that we don't want to be just making sweeping statements or even ignorant statements to, but, but what I want you to see here where we have to stand on some solid ground is that God upholds gender distinctions. He created you male or female. And we see that in this text, and Paul grounds it in the creation. Why is this? Because he made God, or mankind in his own image. Doesn't mean there aren't other issues to talk about. And we'll, we'll get there, hopefully, today. 
Second thing, notice in this text, he says, for their women exchange natural, I want you to key in here on natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. He moves to the men, and men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for another. To go against God's design, Paul says, is unnatural. That's a key word. What, what does that mean, unnatural? The context here, again, is creation. We've got to keep that in mind. And he speaks of the design that God made for sexual relations between a male and a female. And he says in verse 26 that women who exchange, where did we see that term already used? Verse 25, right? They exchange the truth about God for a lie. So now he's applying this. Here's how this is showing itself up in, in sexual morality. They exchange the natural relations, Allah, God's design for women to be with a man, and they go contrary to nature, God's created order. Same is true for males who give up. And, and, and here in verse 27, that give up means forsake, to abandon natural relations with men and so are consumed with passion for one another. He might say, how do, how do you get around that? That seems very clear. Yet, there are very creative people who have who've sought to make these texts say things that they don't. I want to give you four objections here and, and kind of quickly try to equip you with how to, to think about this. Number one, uh, sometimes... People trying to, to remove the, the, the blunt of this text or the force of this text. They say this, that Paul's just talking about non-consensual relations. So rape, if you want to put it that way. Or, second objection, uh, this is, is just talking about pedophilia. So they, they pick out a, a subset of this sin and just say, Here, here's a wrong expression of it. And, and, and that's really what's going on here. Number three, they, they, they say it means that to go against nature isn't creation, but it's to go against your sexual orientation. So if you're heterosexual, it would be wrong for you to do acts that are of homosexual nature or, or vice versa. If you're of homosexual nature, it would be wrong for you to, be, to act as a heterosexual. And finally, number four, they, they say that to go contrary to nature means culture. If the culture says it's wrong, then it's wrong. But now our culture says it's okay, so it's okay. You see, those are, those are the ways that people try to get around this text. Well, the first objection, consensual is the argument, is that rape is, the problem with that is rape's wrong in all its forms, heterosexual or homosexual. But here, Paul is not narrowing this. He specifically has brought up homosexuality. There's other ways that you could address rape, and he's already talked about sexual morality in general. He's giving a, a, a more specific um, element here. Number two, uh, the objection that Paul is talking about pederasty or pedophilia. It ignores that Paul, in verse 26, spoke about lesbianism. And people make this case because in the Roman, Greco-Roman world, rich 
men would do these things to their slave boys. And this was acceptable in their culture. But what is interesting to note is that the literature does not speak of women doing such things. But yet Paul brings women into the picture to speak of all homosexual activity. The last two objections, orientation and culture, ignore the context that we've, we've, I've tried to show you here, that Paul grounds his argument in creation. And so this idea of, of, of by nature speaking about your sexual orientation, that's not what he's talking about. He's talking about God's design, not, not your desires. He's already talked about our desires. He says they're dishonorable passions. And then the culture idea, again, he's rooting this in creation. And, and the problem with this view is that the Roman culture accepted all these things. This was common. We're not quite as far as they were, but we'll be there. We're on our way. And so it would make no sense for him to say, well, as long as the culture says don't do this, don't do this. When the culture already said, this, this isn't even up for debate. So what is Paul saying here? He's saying that homosexuality in all of its forms, lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender, are all perversions of God's created order for humanity. That's what it means when you see that phrase at the end of verse 26, are contrary to nature. I don't have time to do this, but there are Greek philosophers, both uh, amongst Greco-Roman and Hellenistic, meaning Jews, who use this exact phrase to deal with the sin of homosexuality in their midst. Paul is recalling a phrase that everybody would have known, rooting it back to creation, regardless if you're a Christian or not. And Paul says that this is an exchanging of the truth about God for a lie. And here's the lie that so many believe. And maybe if you're here today and you're, you're struggling with homosexual desires, this is, this is the temptation that comes into your mind. This is the lie that the world is offering. God wouldn't have given me these desires if he didn't want me to fulfill them. That's, when I talk to people struggling, that is, that is what comes out. Then why did God give me these desires? Here's the interesting thing, as I hear the same thing when people are contemplating adultery as well. If God didn't want me to be with that woman, if God didn't want me to be with that man, then why do I have such a strong desire for them and not my spouse? Well, that's not God's perversion. That's our perversion. It's the same. That's the point I want you to see. The perversion of our desires is the problem that Paul is highlighting here. And the problem with this logic is that, it, that, that these desires that come out from us, these sexual impurities, they, they are the result of, of, of the curse, the result of sin. They express our fallen condition, and they are a witness to the fact that God's judgment and wrath is being poured out upon humanity. I've spoken to parents who are battling as their children are coming to them and saying, I, I'm gay. And this is usually the question they come to the conclusion, well, they're born this way. And this is where Christians need to be careful as well. Because I think we, we, when we understand 
original sin and depravity, we can answer this question. But if we think somehow we're born neutral, without any uh, propensity to a particular sin, we'll, we'll mess this up. And so they, they typically ask, well, I think they, they, they've, they've walked us through their struggles. This was going on at the earliest of ages. I think they were born this way. And, and that somehow means that it's okay. And so I typically ask, well, what if your child was born with a genetic disposition to alcoholism? We found evidence that that's the case. This can be hereditary and run through. Is the solution is, well, let's give them a bottle of Jack Veen or Jim or Jack Daniels? Uh, you can tell I don't drink. I don't. <laughs> Conflating those two. Or the horrible incidents where children to a mother who's addicted to cocaine, that child's born and is now by birth addicted to cocaine is the, is the option is we'll just give them crack. No. The answer is not give yourself to your disposition to these things. It's be aware so that you do not fall into that pit. I then explain Here's the deal. We're all born broken. I'm not surprised by this news. We're all born with dispositions to particular sins. And the answer to our sin is not, well, let them have at it. The answer to our sin is, we must call upon the name of the Lord to be saved. We're helpless. Because this thing is so ingrained in me, I can't separate myself from it. That's the point. And whether you're battling with the sin of homosexuality or other forms of, of, of sexual immorality or other sins, yes, it is inside you. There is no escaping it, and that is why you need someone outside of you to rescue you. Maybe you're here at Oak Park and you have these desires. I know those of you who've talked to me, maybe there's others that I don't know about. And I know you probably feel intimidated, fearful to ever mention the fact that you may struggle with these things. Brothers and sisters, what I want you to know is that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be a safe place for sinners. A safe place. Because here's, here's what we see, and, and, and I'm going to wrap this up, attempt to here. We're all in the same boat. It just manifests itself in various ways. And you're not some freak. You're just a sinner just like the rest of us who needs a Savior. And so the church is to be a safe place for sinners, but not a safe place for sin. We come to the cross because sin was dealt there. It didn't say, okay, we're all sinners, we just continue in our sin. No, no, no. come in safety, encourage one another, bear each other's burdens as we focus on Christ and we admit our, our failures and we, we, we are forsaking ourselves and, and clinging to Jesus. This is exactly what Jesus says. If anyone wishes to follow me, he must what? Deny himself. And our culture is selling us a, a, a bag of lies to exchange the truth of God with. 
and saying, you don't have to abandon that. That'd be to abandon yourself, and God wouldn't want you to go against yourself. Yes, he does. He says, if you want to follow me, deny yourself. And that goes for every single person in this room. And so, brother or sister, if you're struggling, do not keep this to yourself. I'm not saying you need to declare it to the whole world, just as I wouldn't tell anybody who's struggling with any other sin, just go declaring it to the whole world, but go find a, another faithful brother or sister, come to, to me or one of your other pastors, and say, I am struggling here, I need help. And we would be happy to begin to walk with you as we have to walk with ourselves and everyone else as we battle sin for the rest of our lives. So I said I had two points. I do. We see God has given humanity not only the lust of the hearts, but also, as we're going to just briefly touch on, that he's also given us over to corrupt minds. Corrupt minds. Verse 28. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is what Paul's going to talk about later in Romans chapter 8, the mind that's set on the flesh. Paul's been very specific with sexual morality. Now he goes to just the corruption of the mind. This is what theologians call the Noahic effects of the fall. You don't really need to remember that term, but if you read that, that's what this is talking about. It's not talking about Noah and the ark, okay? It's talking about your mind. Because of sin that has entered the world, not only are we morally corrupt, we're mentally corrupt. And mentally, we, we pervert everything. And that's what Paul does here. He, he gives a list, and just look at it. He says, because our minds are broken... We are now filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. And, and the point isn't to kind of pick out yours. He, he's describing this like a mosaic of just the disgusting nature of sin. And here's the truth. As we go through this, if you haven't already been hit, you will be hit if you're honest with yourself. He goes on, they're, they're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malicious. They're gossips slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. And he concludes here with these four words. They're foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. This culminating ending describes humanity. Foolish, faithless, heartless, and ruthless. We've all experienced that. And we've all done that. In idolatry, we claim to be wise, but it makes us fools. Our idolatry expresses a lack of trust in God as he's revealed himself. And the peril of this idolatry is, we, is the dehumanization of humanity. And so we are heartless and ruthless to each other. I see it sometimes on Facebook. You see... Videos of kids jumping other kids at school. Or you just see stuff happen at ball games. Or you just look at people talk to each other. We're ruthless. 
And if you've ever wanted to know the depths of one's depravity and sin, all you have to do is tell somebody they're anonymous. And the full depths come out. The truth is, we know the same is true about our heart when left to itself. Paul's purpose of describing the perils of idolatry is not so that we look at this text and say, all those wicked people out there. It's not his point. Because when we get into chapter 2, he he flips the tables on his audience and he says, for this, or excuse me, verse 2, therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. If we're genuinely true with ourselves, we know that our hearts are little idol factories. And when we bow down, it gets nasty. And that's what our Savior delivered us from. And so our response must be brokenness, confession, understanding that apart from the restraining grace of God, we too would be overcome by our sinful desires. And this bleak perspective on humanity sets the stage for the beautiful gospel of Jesus Christ by which we are to go into the world and rescue sinners and tell them that there is one who will give you a new body, there is one who will give you a new heart, and there is one who will give you a new mind. Come and you will find life that let us pray dear lord these are weighty truths Um, but lord there are truths that we need to see your words like a mirror and we see ourselves and lord i pray that we would not be a people who, who think we are somehow above any of these things but we would be a people who realize that you have rescued us that such were some of us. But you washed us. You sanctified us. And Lord, may we, realizing the peril that we once were in, that we were once skating on thin ice, and yet you did not kill us. But you saved us. May we be the ones who would bring the message of salvation to others. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've got a special time where this is going to be the last Sunday. Our Haiti team is going to be here before they depart. and So I'm going to ask our Haiti team to come. I think we're only missing Diane, but all those who are going to Haiti, you should know who you are. You come, you come forward. We've also got, we're just going to do this today. Sierra Smith is going to come up here in two weeks. She's going to the Middle East. If you heard Chris West, he gave away her location. Can we share that, or does that need to be secret? Secret. So if you heard it, don't put it on Facebook. But she's going to the Middle East where it's very dangerous. Um, we also have Valerie Buzinitz, who's blessed us with her presence. She's flown in just from Israel, and you're going to Mongolia next week on a mission trip. And then Joel Foster, is he still around here? He bailed on us. He was here. But Joel recently got back from Spain um, on a mission trip. Um, And so we are in a wonderful season of our church where we have all kinds of people coming and going 
taking this good news to the ends of the earth. And if the truths of what we looked at in this scripture aren't true, then why are we doing this? If there's nothing to rescue people from, there's nothing to go to. But the truths of these things are real. And so I'm encouraged. I get to lead most of these. Sierra is going to be leaving here in a couple of weeks on her own. But let's pray that she's not on her own as we are with her in spirit. Valerie, and I pray that you would continue to pray for our Haiti team as we leave Wednesday morning, and we'll get back uh, next week or the following Monday, um, that you will pray for us, uh, pray for our safety, uh, pray that we would be a blessing to the believers there, and also that we may uh, be a light to the non-believers who will be watching us as we come in. All right, let us, let's go to the Lord, and let's pray as we commission this group out. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for so many uh, here in this church who have a heart to go, who have a heart to give up uh, uh, work and money, even vacation time, uh, to, to give it to gospel ministry. And Lord, I'm privileged to be able to lead most of this team on this trip. And, and Lord, I, I thank you for Pastor Joseph and his faithfulness and how you've used him to plant various churches throughout Haiti. And we get to come and partner up with the church in Laestere. And Lord, I pray for Deacon Sonny and, and Pastor Enriquez as they will be waiting for us this week. Lord, I pray that we would be a blessing to them. And Lord, that they would be encouraged, that they would be um, strengthened. Because Lord, we're only there for a short time, but they are there for a lifetime. Um, may you use us to be uh, a refreshment to their souls. That they may carry on the good work that they are doing. Lord, I lift up Sierra. She's going to be going to the Middle East into a, a very dangerous area. Her and the rest of the team that will be going from Southern Seminary. And Lord, I pray for all the, uh, their travels that you'd give them safety, but even safety as they are there. You would guard them from anyone who would oppose your people and oppose your gospel or want to do harm to them. And Lord, anyone that you would put in their place that would be of that disposition, I pray that you would bring your hand of grace upon their heart. And that they would receive the gospel. And pray for Valerie as she goes to Mongolia here next week. Lord, that you would give her safety. And as she partners up with missionaries there, Lord, that she can be a blessing to them as they seek to reach people with the gospel. And Lord, I pray for all of us. Lord, the picture is bleak when we're left to ourselves. Humanity is in trouble. But Lord, you have not left us to ourselves. You have become a man sending your son, Jesus Christ, born of a virgin, not tainted with Adam's guilt, but yet came to take Adam's sin upon him and take that punishment that all who would believe in Jesus would not perish but have eternal life. Lord, you've come to rescue us. And Lord, I pray that we would go out of this place this, this, uh, in just a moment and we'd be your ambassadors telling others to come to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.